Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Sabah al-khair. Good morning, dear listeners. You're listening to Radio 3CR on 855 AM and Palestine Remembered with Robert Martin, Nasser Mashni and Yusuf Ahmed al-Rimawi. Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English-language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Yusuf. Good morning, listeners. Good morning, Nasser, from wherever you are today. Nasser is bringing us coffee today, so he won't be with us. Well, he's our uh, international consultant these days, so, yeah. uh, you know, morning to you, Nasser. So, uh, Robert, uh, before uh, we speak about the main segment of today's episode, um, we have lost uh, two beautiful souls in Palestine, like we do every week. Uh, Razan al-Najjar in uh, Gaza and one of the Tamimi family in uh, Nabi Saleh in Both West 21 Bank. year olds, 21 year old youths mm. uh, and I think their only crime being a Palestinian and what, what I found very sad this, this week is that the world is now crying even though it's been 120 odd people killed mm. uh, and murdered I mean these are civilians murdered uh, but now we're starting to see a little bit more momentum because one was an emergency worker from Gaza, a mm. uh, fantastic 21-year-old who, in fact, a week or two before she was killed, had been shot in the foot. And she had then gone back to say that, these, you know, my brothers and sisters and I have to do what I have to do, which shows the steadfastness of the, the Palestinians and the so- solidarity that they have with each other. And the spirit, the kind of spirit oh. that will never be broken. You can't break that. You cannot break that. And I think uh, I think maybe the world's starting to see it. And and I want to encourage our listeners to contemplate of a sniper targeting a paramedic in her uniform. You cannot miss a paramedic in its in her white no. all coat all all white coat uh, while she was trying to do her work. So it is targeted assassination. Of course it is. It is not accidental. It is targeted, and they target paramedics. Well, so Israel's come out and said that they've done an investigation and said that, you know, she wasn't killed on purpose. Well, what about the 120 people that mm. have died? Who were killed on purpose. Now, the, these are snipers. They are highly trained snipers using American-made weapons. They have a target or a scope mm. that you can see through. Why are you pulling the trigger if it's not intentional? The fact that anyone can do this to a fellow human being let alone a 21-year-old woman who pose, helping. Who pose zero threat. But Yusuf, most of these people, the majority, if not all of them, have posed no threat mm. because they are going through a fence that in fact is on their own land because Israel has got a buffer zone. And we keep saying this. 
but all of the typical propaganda that these people are wanting to get out and kill Jews and do this, it's a total fabrication. It's not true. They simply want to go home from where their parents were born. Hmm. But the fact now that uh, you know you, you start to get over one of the murders and then you find that one of the Tamimis you know, from Nabi Saleh. Now, Nabi Saleh is a very, very small place. Our head Tamimi is in jail, who was 16 when she was arrested, and now she's in jail. Bassem Tamimi, who I know personally, and I've met uh, our head. Um, you know, our head slapped a soldier on her own land because they were provoking her. Inside and, her own property, in private her own property, property. After they had, in fact, shot her cousin in the face as he was on a fence. Now, you know, the 21-year-old last night was killed, shot in the throat. Israel has come out. Uh, sorry, I should say on Wednesday night, uh, Israel's come out saying that, yes, he was unarmed. He posed no threat. Now, are any of these soldiers ever going to get held to account? Because I hear for the Israeli apologists talking that every single round is accounted for. Hmm. And they know that every bullet where it, it's going to land. So why not hold these people accountable? If you don't hold them accountable, they'll keep doing it. But the way they hold these people accountable is they become rock stars. They become superstars in their own country. We will talk more about uh, Razan and Al-Tamimi uh, with more details, with details they deserve in future episodes. But tell us about our uh, guest uh, you met uh, in Palestine last year. So I was lucky enough, as, as uh, I think a lot of people know, to spend time in Palestine. I went to Jerusalem and I was uh, in a Baha Helio, who was a fantastic guy who was organizing solidarity tours where I did olive picking and I met fantastic Palestinians uh, in a singer's cafe in Bethlehem, so people should go. But they also organized uh, a number of speakers. Uh, and this particular interview that I did, I did at Singer Cafe. His name is Enjab al Kassis. He works for Badil Legal Support Network. He's an international lawyer, fantastic gentleman. And we spoke about the beginning of Zionism because it didn't happen in 1948. But also what they needed to do is they needed to find a way that would attract Jews living in countries already. In Europe mostly. In Europe mostly, to come to Palestine. Mm. And the way they did it is, is quite interesting, quite fascinating. And so I, I learned a lot on the way. There's a little bit of background noise because we're at Singer's Cafe and people would walk Which in every so often. Yeah, uh, and he's fantastic. Definitely well worth a listen. Um, and this is actually part one of probably what will end up being a three-part. Hmm. So without uh, further uh, delay, we will listen to Robert's interview with uh, Mr. Amjad Al-Qassis, uh, an interview that Robert did when he was in Palestine last year. So stay with us and we will be back shortly. Hi, this is Robert from Palestine, and I'm here with a very, very educated and smart Palestinian who does international law. Um, and I was there with a presentation, and I thought the first thing, first of all, I'll get you to introduce yourself, but also to discuss before Zionists decided to come to Palestine, there were many other options, but they had to connect it in another way. So tell us about that. Yeah. Hi, Robert. My name is uh, Amjad al and I'm a member of Bedil's Legal Support uh, Network. And uh, thank you for this opportunity. And yeah, I, mean, I think it's important to understand when you look at uh, what is happening today within this area of the world, in, uh, in Israel and in occupied Palestinian territory, to understand uh, where it came from. 
what's the starting point of the situation today. And clearly the starting point of today's situation is in the late 19th century. There was a conference in Basel, the first conference of the Zionist movement, which is a very important uh, conference, because in that movement they actually agreed on creating the state of Israel in Palestine. And before doing so, before actually issuing a statement that they want to do it in Palestine, they were arguing where to do it. And they had two viable uh, countries, Uganda and Argentina. And the interesting point was for Uganda and Argentina, because both were colonies themselves, so the idea was to purchase a huge amount of land within one of those countries to start the state of Israel there. But within that conference, the Zionist movement had a huge problem because they wanted to find a way to connect to the millions of Jewish people worldwide, and in particular the millions of Jewish people in Europe at that time. Because in the end, if you want to create a country, if you want to start a country from scratch, you need people in order to build this country. And the Zionist movement, I would say, by best favorable statistics, they had at best tens of thousands of members. And with tens of thousands of members, you cannot start a country. So you you needed, the Zionist movement needed the millions of European Jews. And in that conference, we can read the protocols and see that this was a main argument. How will we be able to reach the millions of Jews in Europe? Why would a French Jew leave France and go to a country thousands of kilometers away? Why would a Swiss Jew leave Switzerland and go to a, a place far, far away, a place the person has never been before and a place the person has never thought of going there? For the Zionist movement, out of a pragmatic reason, it was a pure pragmatic reason to say, okay, we have to do it in Palestine. It's not a natural thing, because people today, when they think about Israel, they say, of course, it's natural that they did it in Palestine. Where else? they would do it. But no, it was a very pragmatic reason to say, okay, we will do it in Palestine, because if we do it in Palestine, we can connect it to Jewish history and to Jewish religion, and suddenly it won't be the Zionist movement telling millions of European Jews, go and start a country with us. It's God himself who promised you this land. And so there would be a bigger reason for people uh, to go to Palestine. So it was a fraud, basically. Let's connect it to God, and people will want to come. And it worked. It worked, of course, also with difficulties. It's, even then, it was not the natural decision of people to go. And especially the Zionist movement, because I think that, that it's easy to, 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 um, to see in a way that poorer people might be easier convinced to go. I mean, if you live in a country and you have little to lose and someone comes and says, we want to go and start a new country, then uh, you might be intrigued to go. But this was not the target group for the Zionist movement because they wanted the middle class, the upper class, they wanted the, yeah. the rich people, they wanted the lawyers, the doctors, the, uh, the mm. people which you need to build a country with. So it was still, even though they 
in the end agreed to do it in Palestine. It was still not very easy for them to actually convince that many European Jews to go to mm. Palestine because still, yes, there was a historic connection, there was a religious connection, but 19th century Europe and early 20th century Europe, you already had the movement of athe atheism in Europe. So you had many Jews who weren't in particular uh, religious, so who, who weren't that intrigued to go and start uh, a life in, in Palestine. But in the end, for the Zionist movement in that time, doing it in Palestine was the only possibility to at least connect with the Jewish community and to have a stronger argument to convince them to actually come with them and start a new uh, country. And I think that um, to really understand the dimensions of this uh, starting point, and maybe um, people have heard the motto of the Zionist movement back then, people without the land will get the land without people. Yeah. <clears throat> the Zionist movement, of course, knew from the very beginning that Palestine was not a land without people. People were living in Palestine, namely Palestinians. So the Zionist movement basically had to create a reality according to their own vision. So the people, the indigenous population who was living in Palestine had to be forcibly removed in order then to claim this is a land without people, for the people without land. So when we look at the beginning and we, when we look at the first conference in Basel, where one very important decision, okay, out of pragmatic reasons, we will do it in Palestine. The second very important decision was that this Jewish state should be exclusively for Jews. And if you want to create a country in an area where the predominant population is non-Jewish, you want to create a state for exclusively Jewish people in an area predominantly populated by non-Jewish population, you can only do it by two ways, and two ways only. One is by genocide, simply killing all others, or number two, by ethnic cleansing, by forced population transfer, by simply forcibly displacing the population you don't want to have. And this is what the Zionist movement agreed on. The Zionist movement agreed on they are not going to murder all Palestinians, so they opted for not uh, doing a genocide, and they opted for the second option for forcibly displacing the Palestinian population. And this is why when we look at the, the numbers only, they indicate in the area where the State of Israel was created in 1948, 85% of the indigenous population of the Palestinians became refugees and were forcibly removed. And 85% of the population clearly is a dimension where we talk about ethnic cleansing and nothing less than ethnic cleansing. So it was planned and carried out successfully. Yes. That was the plan, and it's, it's obviously, uh, it worked. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. When we look at the intention of the Zionist movement to basically colonize a territory they don't have any actual link to. I mean, if we, yeah. if we, if we don't regard historic and religious links as actual links, at least, like legally speaking, there were no links to the to the territory they wanted to colonize. And as I said, they opted for an option which 
would have or constituted ethnic cleansing, forcible displacement. And the Zionist movement, interestingly, had its first detailed plan how to actually ethnic cleanse Palestine from its indigenous population in, uh, made in 1916. In 1916, the Zionist movement had its first detailed plan. The intention to do it was already agreed upon in the late 19th century, but the, the actual plan how to implement it was done in 1916. Is this plan valid? No. This is like a predecessor of Plan Dalet. Plan Dalet, which was a plan which then was executed in the war of 1948, roughly between 1947 and 1952, is a development of this initial, initial plan from 1916. And interestingly, the Zionist movement had a, had a full-fledged detailed plan in 1916 how to do it, how to implement its vision in Palestine to create the State of Israel, but it was implemented in 1948, in the war of 1948. And a question would be, why did, it, why did the Zionist movement wait from 1916 to 1948 or 1947? And the Zionist movement wanted to have a legitimacy, legitimacy by the probably important. Zionist movement was an elitist, intellectual, political movement of the 19th century Europe. Very uh, colonial, very uh, based on, on notions of white supremacy. <clears throat> uh, and this movement wanted to create a country which would become a strong country. And they knew from the beginning if we want to create a strong country, we need international ties, international relations. So it wouldn't be that successful to just create a country and then see what will happen. No, yeah. we want to have the international community on our side before we create our country. And the notion was for the Zionist movement, you know, we can wait a decade or two or three, it wouldn't matter. But in the end, we will have what we want to have. They're still looking for legitimacy, aren't they? That's an important thing for Israel. <laughs> yeah, greatly, greatly, yeah. of course. And, and back then, the legitimacy they received was the United Nations Partition Plan from 1947. Suddenly, the Zionist movement had what it waited for for 30 years. From 1916 till 1947, the Zionist movement was preparing, waiting, preparing, waiting. In 1947, they received from the, from the newly created United yeah. Nations the legitimacy they were waiting for for many, many decades. And here also, interestingly, because even until today, 2017, Israeli officials, or Israel's official position actually is that what happened in the war of 1948 was never intended by the Zionist movement or later by the State of Israel. And of course, today they acknowledge, I mean, within the last 70 years, Israel went through different phases. At the beginning, they were saying no person has ever been forcibly displaced. Until today, I mean, like within 17 years. Is that what they said at the start? Nobody has been forcibly removed? Yeah, they were saying no, there were no people living here. So the, yeah, okay. the, clearly the motto, yeah, okay. people without the land, yeah. and uh, land without people. Yeah. And they were sticking to that, even though the reality was, was very different. 
I think some propaganda still uses it. Yeah. People are a little bit ignorant and haven't seen the updated yes. admissions. Yeah. And so. the, today, Israel's official position is actually, okay, we admit that many people were displaced. I mean, in fact, and it, it's a fact which uh, it's difficult to, uh, to disapprove with. 85% of the Palestinian population in that area was forcibly displaced, which yeah. were between 750 to 800,000 people at that time. A huge amount of people, when you think about it. Hundreds of thousands of people within a very short period of time became refugees in 1948, or between 1947 and 1952, the war of 1948. And Israel is today saying, yeah, but it was no, never, never our intention to do so. And they are blaming the Arabs, because Israel is saying yeah. Zionist movement as representative of the Jewish population, agreed to the United Nations Partition Plan in 1947. The Arab countries, as representative of the Palestinians, they did not agree. So one side agreed, the other side didn't agree, so a war started, turmoil, chaos, and coincidentally, 85% of the Palestinian population found itself on the other side of the, uh, of the border. And uh, this is Israel's official position today. And of course, they try to back it up with, yeah, you know, people without land still exist in the mind of Israel today in a way of saying, yeah, it were individual communities, but not a people. So there was no national structure to say that they are Palestinians, like the people who were displaced in the northern part are completely different from the people in the southern part or central part or western part and so on. So, of course, they try to constantly legitimize uh, what they yeah. have been doing and what they are um, still doing. But, of course, clearly, clearly, Palestine... And, and I mean, sometimes it's even, it's even laughable that you actually have to argue this uh, Israel's position because it's completely built on nonsense. But if you want to argue Israel's position, Palestine in 1947 was a British Mandate Area A. And anyone who knows about the Mandate Areas, and uh, just to make this point clear, I'm not, uh, I'm not a friend of the Mandate... Uh, right, yes, let's make that clear. ...of the yeah. Mandate idea. Yeah. But a Mandate A area meant in that time that the, the, the population under occupation, Palestine under British occupation, is in, in a moment to receive its independence. Like, for example, Jordan. Like, wow. for example, Syria. Like, for example, Saudi Arabia. All countries today, which I guess no one would argue that they are not... Uh, that they are not countries, or that they don't have a national population. Palestine was an Area A mandate territory. You had, in that time, mandate C, B, and A. So C, from the perspective of British-French colonizers, the, the least developed countries, to B and A, the most developed one. And again, mandate A territory meant it's the almost fully developed country, and within a couple of years it will receive its independence. So that's amazing. You never, I've never, you never hear this. 
So, and, and, and uh, again, it's, uh, it's laughable to actually try to argue Israel's position. No, you can't argue but, with that. But it's, it, this is... You can't argue with that. Yeah, no, it's, this is a clear, this is, I mean, this is a clear statement. Palestine yeah. was a Mandate A territory, like Jordan, like Saudi Arabia, like Syria. So Palestine, within its natural historic development, and the Zionist movement would not have interfered. It would have received its independence within the same period of time, like Syria, like Jordan, like... And this is all documented. People can find this easy. I mean, it's, it's impossible to argue with that. That's fascinating. Of course. I was going to say also that in part of your presentation, we spoke about colonialism. And today, it's still colonialism, isn't it? What they're doing is a colonialistic regime. Yes, definitely. Nothing else. No, I mean, yeah, it, it is colonialism which uh, has aspects of other illegal acts. Um, and when you look at I, I think that... Um, if you look at today, if you look at a, a settlement Israel is building today in 2017 in the occupied Palestinian territory, if you look at any settlement built in 2017, and if you compare that, if you compare what Israel is creating in 2017 with the very early settlements which the Zionist movement created in Palestine in the 1920s, so 100 years ago, which were called kibbutzes. This is a term uh, people are familiar with. The first settlement of the Zionist movement in Palestine were called kibbutzes. And when you today, if you would go to the northern part of Israel today and you look at the very first kibbutzes the Zionist movement built, and then you look at any settlement Israel is creating in 2017, 100 years later, it's the same architecture. It's, it looks the same. It's always built on a hilltop uh, in a way of a rondelle with very little entry and access points, easy to defend. Because the mindset, the colonial mindset, that we are creating or we are building a country in a hostile environment. So we have to defend ourselves from the natives from the barbaric yeah. natives who are surrounding us. And this colonial mindset, which started even more than 100 years ago, it's still visible today in modern days Israel, in modern days settlement expansion, settlement creation and occupied territory. And when we understand the concept of colonization and when we look again at what is happening today in occupied territory what for example is happening today in, in the Bethlehem district in the Ramallah district in the Nablus district why is, is Israel actually building settlements because when you today when you would, if, you, if you would drive through the northern part of Israel, the Galilee. You could drive one hour with your car without seeing any house left or right. So there's no, no need, no spatial need for Israel to create no. settlements. It's not like, okay, Israel is a completely overpopulated country and there's a need now to expand. No, this expansion is based on, on the colonial mindset because for, the, for, the, for this colonial mindset, Israel itself is already... Uh, it's already theirs. And with each and every settlement in occupied territory, it expands. 
its territory. And when you look at, actually, and I think uh, the best way to describe it is by the words of Golda Meir, one of Israel's uh, former prime ministers, who actually said it perfectly. (laughs) She said, Israel is not determined by a line on a map. Israel is determined by wherever Jews live. And this is exactly the colonial mindset. So, with every settlement expansion, with every creation of additional settlements, the state territory of Israel is expanding. And Israel today, in 2017, is, as far as I know, the only country in the world without official state borders. And anyone who has studied uh, political science or, or law or whatever, I think in the first semester, you when you hear about well, yeah, what, what defines a state, yeah. one of the crucial requirements is state borders. So Israel would fail the state uh, test. Immediately. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, but why does Israel not have state borders? For one crucial point. Because if you have a state border, for one, yes, you determine what is yours. But for two, you determine what is not yours. And in the Israeli colonial mindset, it wouldn't work. Because this colonization is still in process. With each settlement build, with each outpost build, with each bypass road build, with each additional military camp build, with each water reservoir build, with each national park build, with each tree planted, Israel's borders are expanding and expanding and expanding. This is a colonial process which has started 100 years ago with the very first kibbutzes created in Palestine as very first colonies again, through the mindset of the Zionist movement in hostile uh, environment, and it's continuing until today. You've been listening to an interview I did with Amjad Al-Kassis, who is our Palestinian international lawyer in Bethlehem. So uh, that's it uh, with uh, our uh, edition of Palestine Remember this week. Until we meet next Saturday for the Radiothon, this is Robert and Youssef wishing you the best of time, and salam. Bye-bye.